Welcome back to Dear Adam Silver, a show dedicated to creating and discussing alternative perspectives on sports from the viewpoint of an artist. I am your host, Abigail Smithson, and my guest today is Julie DeCaro, author of the recently published book, Sidelined, Sports, Culture, and Being a Woman in America. This book touches on so much, from Julie's time in radio covering sports, to the harassment she has received herself from fans and listeners, to her time in the sport for development world. Thank you, Julie, for coming on and sharing about all that went into producing this book, including her personal experiences. You can also find Julie on her podcast, which she co-hosts with Jane McManus, called The Ladies' Room, where each week they dive into issues surrounding women in sports. And thank you so much to you all for listening. Please share, subscribe, rate, and review Dear Adam Silver wherever you get your podcasts. Your support is always appreciated. So, Julie, thanks so much for making time today to discuss your newly released book, Sidelined, Sports, Culture, and Being a Woman in America. And this book, um, it feels very much necessary right now, and it's like kind of part manifesto, part reporting, part lived experience, and, and sort of embedded in this whole book is kind of your willingness to be to be vulnerable with the public with your readers um, and all of that. And so I just want to say thank you for writing it and and welcome you on the podcast. Oh, that's so sweet of you to say. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. So I think we should start maybe pre-book, if you will. And uh, just if you could talk a little bit how you transitioned from being a lawyer to doing sports radio and being a sports journalist and editor. So I went to journalism school um, wanting to be in sports media, and I really wanted to do like play-by-play for the Cubs. Like that was my big thing when I was a kid. And, um, you know, I, I went to journalism school and, and when I graduated, I couldn't figure out how to get to where I wanted to go from where I was. Um, you know, and when it came to going into sports media, it was sort of like you had to know someone and like your dad had to get you like an sure. internship at Sports Illustrated. And it was just, it was really difficult, especially for women. So, and I never, I didn't really see anyone who I could be like, oh, she did it like this and that's how I'm going to do it. So, um, you know, I decided to go to law school just because I didn't really know what else to do. And, you know, even if I had gone to like, you know, a small town newspaper, you know, and tried to cover sports that way and sort of work my way up, I still would have been like three deep on the bench um, because this is sort of right as the internet is really taking off. So everything was still newspaper. Um, So, you know, I went to law school and I had my legal career and, it was when I've always loved the Chicago Cubs. I've always loved sports in general, but the Cubs were really like my favorite thing. And, um, I, you know, sports blogs started becoming a thing. And I think that SB nation in like 2005 started like five blogs and one of them was a Cubs blog. So I started hanging out on the site and back then you could post your own, like they call them diaries, but you could post your own posts on the side. And so I would do that all the time on the Cubs site. And I started sort of getting a following and eventually started my own site and um, it was just like a labor of love. Like, obviously, I didn't get paid for it. I did it just for fun. Um, and one day I got a call from the Chicago Tribune and they said, you know, we're going to start a blog network and we want your blog to be on it. So I was the first blog they signed up. And from there, um, I eventually went to work for the Tribune, sort of trying to teach other bloggers how to get an audience. And one day I got a call from uh, WGN Radio who said, we're going to start a sports talk radio station and we want you to be on it. 
And, and that was sort of the roundabout way that I wound up in this career that I wanted when I was a kid and, and just couldn't figure out how to get there. So I think for a lot of us that the internet really opened up doors because suddenly you didn't have to, um, you know, work your way up at some small town newspaper. Like you could just start a blog, you could start a YouTube channel, you can start a podcast and you can develop your own following. And, and then you can take that to the job that you want and say, look, I've got all these followers. I've got a big audience. Put me on the air or put me in on your site. And um, so I think that that was a way that a lot of women wound up getting into sports media. And I was one of them. That's such a cool sort of story how it happened really organically, even though maybe at another time in your life you felt that you might need to go through more of a process to get to the place you wanted to be, that this was something that just was just out of pure love for baseball and this team that it became this professional opportunity. Yeah, I think so. And I think that, you know, it sort of was our way of kicking the walls down um, because, you know, like Sarah Spain, we, we were both blogging at the same time on the same blog network in Chicago. And we were just like, you know, it's just one of those things where you're just like, you know what, I'll do it myself. I'll make my own blog. I'll get my own audience. I'll write my own stuff. And, you know, then we'll see. And and so we both wound up, you know, winding, you know, moving into radio because of the audiences that we developed because we had our own site. So right. for women, it was, it was a way of sort of burning it down, I think, and circumventing the boys club that had been there for so long. Yeah. And, and I guess I just, I hadn't, I mean, I think I've thought about podcasts a little bit because I have one as far as this open space where you can kind of make it whatever you want to be and you're not really waiting on someone else. And I think that I just, the, the blogs happened before I had thought about creating my own platform. So that's just such a good point about how the internet made things possible or kind of, you know, um, created ways to work around like sexism within, within yeah. sports as well. Absolutely. And not only that, but people that were maybe a little bit more unconventional. I mean, I remember being at this, there was a, there used to be, I don't know if there still is, but there used to be a convention called Blogs with Balls and it was all sports bloggers. And I remember, you know, going to the one and going to one in New York and like Bomani Jones was there and Drew Magri was there and all the people from Deadspin were there. And it was like, we were like the outsiders, you know, we were, we were like the renegades. Like we were the people who were like doing like pirate radio and now <laughs> almost everybody's in mainstream media. So, um, yeah, I mean, the internet really was a pathway for a lot of people that I think wouldn't be in this industry otherwise. So I want to read a, a quote from the beginning of your book where you're describing why you wrote the book. I feel like this is a good place to start as kind of a transition from where you started with with writing about sports and then the book that you've written. Um, I guess that would be like 15 years later. Or I'm not sure when you started writing the book, but when it came out. Uh-huh. Um So you say, and this is when you're kind of going through, again, the list of why you wrote the book. So mostly, though, I wrote it because I realized somewhere around year two of my six years working in sports media that whatever issues women have in society in general, they're amplified by a factor of about a million in sports. Women who work in the industry swim in a toxic stew of gender inequality. Often it seems as if no one cares. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know I mean, if you need to say anything about that. <laughs> I mean, it is there are so few of us in this industry, even though you turn on ESPN and you see all these women and you think like, oh, my gosh. But, you know, sports media is not just ESPN. Right. And even at a place like ESPN, where you have a lot of visual women on, like once you get behind the camera, things are much different. And um, it is it is sort of, um, you know, everyone else's workplace, all the issues you have on on steroids. Because it is just such, it is sort of like a world where things that haven't been okay for a long time in other industries are still considered okay. 
Uh, and, and it is, it can be a really weird place to work. And, and I, um, I don't know that people that don't work in the industry realize that sometimes. Yes. And, and when, as, as far as the sort of content that you were producing, when did you start, start to feel that you needed to comment and, and write about and speak about things that weren't being addressed in, by, by other, by most other people in the industry or, or, or men in the industry about, you know, sexual assault, about, uh, discrimination, like all the, or just, you know, like a, a joke that's not funny um, that was maybe made. So so when did you kind of feel like, oh, this is can also be a part of my, what I do in sports media? I mean, I think just coming from, you know, I feel like you have to have a niche, right? Or you have to have like a, a way to get your foot in the door, right? Whether it's like you're super funny or you're incredibly beautiful or you know more about, you know, some sport than anyone else or you were an ex-athlete. Um, and my thing was that I was a lawyer and I had worked in the criminal defense and I had worked with domestic violence and sexual assault victims. And I had a, I had a sort of a broad knowledge that applied and a lot of um, outlets didn't have anyone that could talk about this stuff. Um, so, you know, it's like we get like, you know, Chris Sim or Phil Sims and Jim Nance weighing in on, you know, Ben Roethlisberger. It, right. it, was, it was ridiculous. So, um, you know, as soon as there was Twitter, I think I was pretty much talking about this stuff, um, even if it was just to sort of try to educate people that didn't know any better. Uh, and to say, you know, people would say things like, oh, well, you know, they dropped the cases because he was they dropped the charges because he was found innocent. And I would be like, no, 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 no. That's not what dropping the charges means, you know, and stuff like that. Or just tell people, you know, there are lots of reasons that domestic violence victims don't come forward, you know, things like that, um, that people just didn't know. So, um, you know, pretty early on, I was doing that. I, you know, one day I was at my job um, at radio station. And, and I got an email from a guy who owned a publishing house. And he just said, you know, you, you put all this stuff on Twitter, on Twitter and give it away for free. Instead, you should put it into a book and, you know, sell it to somebody. And so that was the first time that I really thought about putting this stuff into a book. Um, and, you know, it, it took me a long time to sort of see, like, first of all, I was like, no one's going to care. Um, and then I was like, I, I don't know how I could make this interesting in a way that people would want to read about it. But I was really lucky in that I, I got hooked up with an agent who who knew right away what the book should be and what the niche was and who was going to want to read it. And so he sort of guided me in, you know, you want to talk about this, you want to talk about this and this and this and this. And, you know, it took us probably 18 months to put the book proposal together, which is a really long time. And, um, but he, he had a vision for it. And then once he sort of laid that out for me, I just kind of had to fill in the blanks with my research and experiences and interviews with other people. But he really did a great job of, of, showing me what what the book could be and should be. And it seems like that, I mean, just knowing that you were a lawyer before moving into sports media, that there's this, that you're presenting a case um, with all this evidence of 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 sexism within sports media and and, and sports and um, I'm just I'm wondering if that was like something that you were aware of while you were writing it that you might have been using some of those same skills that you would when, when you were a lawyer. That. Every time I write, every time, because I think that when you're writing about this kind of thing, well, first of all, when you're a woman writing about anything that you have an opinion on, um, first of all, and second of all, when you're writing about topics that people want to push back and they want to disagree with you and they want to say, no, my favorite player didn't do this to a woman. I know that because I know him because I see him every Sunday on my TV. Right. Um, so I think that from the beginning, there's a very, there's a very, um, you know, a, a, 
even before the book, like when I just started writing about sports, that I have to back up everything I say. And that was, you know, whether I'm writing about sexual assault for a, an outlet or whether I'm in the radio and I'm talking about why the Cubs need to bat Nico Horner first, you know, like I, I just always feel like as a woman, I have to bring all the receipts or people are going to question me. And so I think that my background as a lawyer not that they didn't question me because they did, but, um, you know, I, I, I always felt like I had to be super, super prepared and, and have evidence to refute everything they were going to throw at me because that's what it's like when you're a woman in sports media. Like all these guys come out and say like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Like you have no idea. This is just your bias coming out and you have to have all the facts lined up to be able to show them no matter what you're talking about. So, and I know that so many women in sports feel that way. Jessica Mendoza talks about, you know, how she had to, um, she would, you know, spend hours and hours preparing for Sunday night baseball, just because she was like, if I make a mistake, it's going to be because I'm a woman and I'm a softball player and I don't really think about baseball. And, and I think that that's something that a lot of us have that sort of feeling, um, working in this industry that it's not just enough to be good at your job. It's not just enough to be knowledgeable about sports. You can't make a mistake and you have to have all the receipts with you at all times so that you can show them to people. Um, and unfortunately it means that, you know, we work a lot of really long hours and do a lot of emotional labor that the men don't necessarily have to do. Right. And that was such an impactful section of the book when you talk about that, because just thinking about, uh, not that it's bad to have all the receipts for, for, or evidence for what you're saying, but that it's, it's not, it's one-sided. It's only expected of one, of one group or it's only one group that's going to get that pushback. And so that did the way you spell that out in the book was, just yeah, made me realize how um, how things are so skewed, not from what maybe we're seeing or hearing, but from what's happening that goes into what we're seeing and hearing. Right. I mean, you know, like I, I just saw, you know, in the past couple of days, Stephen A. Smith has had like a couple gaffes, like right in a row. Right. I mean, he had one about Thomas Bryant where he's like, oh, he's playing really well. And people are like, yeah, he hasn't played for six weeks. You know, I mean, it, like stuff like that, like women can't do that. And every single woman that I've talked to, um, you know, from women up to like, you know, Beth Moens and Andrea Kramer, all the way down to women who are covering stuff for their high school newspaper. We all feel that way. Like you're just not allowed to make a mistake. And I would love to, you know, I, I I write in the book about seeing my male coworkers just come in, sit down at the mic and start talking. I never felt like I could do that. Um, even with sports that I knew a ton about like soccer and gymnastics, because I played them. Right. I never felt like I could, I always had the research in front of me and all my notes and things tabbed and highlighted. So I could refer to them quickly and, you know, and um, men just don't have to do that. Cause if you make a mistake, they just laugh it off and keep going. And whereas for women, it's, you made a mistake and that is proof that you don't belong in the role you're in. Right. I think the other thing around sort of the the double standard or that uh, that you mentioned in the beginning of the book is also just when you get excited about something mm-hmm. or you, you might sound a certain way that could not be sort of you could receive pushback for for being excited or or, you know, I, I think about all the time when I'm recording. I try and tell myself, don't say like, don't say like, uh, but, I, but you know, when I get excited about something and I'm responding to something in the moment, that's just a part of how I talk and that's how I'm responding to it. And it's just, it's so frustrating that something that can make you seem uh, sort of less serious or qualified uh, mm-hmm. when you're feeling excited about what you're discussing. 
Yeah, I I feel really bad in that I used to police women's voices too. I used to be like, oh, you're up talking, stop saying like, you know, stuff like that. But I read this great book called Word Slut that talks about the way that women use language. And I don't apologize for it anymore. Um, I think, you know, the policing of women's language and the policing of women's voices is is a huge problem. And, you know, I, I, you know, I've been doing radio for I don't even know how many years. I hate the way I sound. I was just listening to my podcast with Jay McManus, yes. listening to it back this morning. And I was like, oh, my God, I hate my voice so much. I hate like my cadence. I hate how it sounds so much lower in my head than it does in actuality. And I'm always trying to like lower it, you know, to sound like more professional. But, you know, when you get excited and when things are happening, happening in the spur of the moment, you, you, you know, tend to revert to your natural voice. And the thing I guess that made me feel better about it was seeing that no matter who you are, no matter how good you are, they say the same thing, right? So it's, you know, they say the same thing about Doris Burke every single time, every game she does, she's trending on Twitter because men are complaining about her voice. Um, Same thing with Beth Mullins, same thing with Jessica Mendoza. And, um, you know, I wrote this story about that and about how much I hated my voice for so long before I learned to accept it. And I wrote about it for the New York Times and Hillary Clinton talked about it in her yes. speech that night. She like <laughs> quoted from it because people say the same thing to her. I mean, Hillary Clinton, if, if she can't, you know, I mean, so it's it's just hopeless. You might as well just be yourself and people can take it or leave it. Yeah, I, I think that some things are, I mean, you know, with time and, and uh, you know, a lot of awareness, there's some things that you can change about you know, how, what your delivery is like or how you're speaking, but it just, those times when you're just so in the moment, you can't control that. And that's actually a beautiful thing that happens that is not something that you can really train yourself for. So I I don't know if I want to, to fix it (laughs) at times like that. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I'm not doing voiceovers for car commercials, right? Right. I'm doing sports podcasts. (laughs) Yeah. You're, you're a human being with emotions that cares about these things. Absolutely. And if it upsets you because I sound like your ex-wife or you think I sound like I'm nagging you because that's what you associate women's voices with, then that's your problem, not mine. And that's sort of what I've gotten to. Right. And so the book kind of moves um, sort of from the beginning to the end, sort of towards some hopeful hopeful things around sort of the, the, the women that you've made, you know, these deep friendships and like this, this support circle with um since your your time in sports media and like what that's meant to you and your time in uh Pakistan and 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 playing uh soccer or some some version of soccer uh there and and uh, with with uh girls in Pakistan and like what that meant to you and um I just I I'm wondering how sort of like you balance the I mean, we also have to talk, you know, about all the shitty things that you share before you get to the good stuff. I mean, that are just so overwhelming (laughs) with Barstool and just you getting trolled and just people saying the worst things possible to you on Twitter and sending you the worst possible imagery and, you know, all the stuff that that happened before that. And just like there's just I feel like this is such an honest portrayal in the sense that we have the really awful stuff and we have this uplifting stuff as well that that can can give some hope yeah I have to give credit for that to my editor because she uh thought a lot about the flow of the book and so we wanted it to sort of 
start off, you know, at a relatively, you know, not happy note, but at least, you know, things are, it was about the history. And so it was sort of, you know, you're removed a bit from the stuff that happened and then you sort of go into a valley and then you come back up. And I, I, we felt like it was really important to leave people on a positive note with like some hope and that, you know, this isn't something that can't be overcome. We just need to care about it. And so um, I give credit to her for the flow of the book, because those are the kinds of things you don't even think about when you're writing a book. Like, I don't care what order you put these chapters in, you know, but like for good editors, that kind of thing matters. And so, you know, they, they managed to put it together in a way that makes you come out looking good. You know, <laughs> Like you put a lot of thought into it, even though you necessarily didn't. So I was just turning, churning out chapters and sending them to her. And she was sort of deciding what the order should be in, for the book. And so I give her a lot of credit for that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's so hard to come out of that um, that section of just like when there's so um, it just personally was so hard. I mean, it it you're sharing so much about how this has personally harmed you, uh, being a woman in sports media who's willing to to advocate for uh, women outside of sports media and, and and speak out against all of this misogyny and all of this uh, toxic toxic toxicity in the space, and so. Yeah, I, I was I I was not expecting the uplifting coming out of that, but it was it was really um, wonderful to see like how how sports have like given you back something as well. Yeah, I you know this this whole idea of sport as development, which is the reason I went to Pakistan to see what they were doing there, um, came out of this idea of using sports to heal child soldiers and getting them back to being children, which I think is really wonderful. And now we see it being used for young girls in countries where women are even more marginalized than they are than in the U.S. and teaching them to have a voice and to be more aggressive than they're they're socialized to be and to interrupt and to stand up for themselves and, and do all these things that that aren't necessarily things that are valued in their culture. Um, and I think that, you know, in some way, it's sort of like, if we can get just back to just the sports, you can find that joy that you had when you were a child. I mean, nobody wants to, no, none of us went into sports media to talk about online harassment or, sure. you know, the way that, you know, like violence against women and sexual assault and, you know, the way that men treat us. And, you know, I mean, we all got here eventually or in the beginning because we loved sports and that's what we want to talk about. And so, you know, I think that that, that trip and, and hopefully the message towards the end of the book is that, you know, that there are so many good things to come from sports. If we can handle the bad ones, you know, then the possibilities are sort of endless. Um, and you know, you can sort of get back to this sort of childlike wonder that you had when you first discovered how much you love sports, especially when you see it in other people. So that was sort of what I wanted to leave everybody with. Yes. And I think that it, it took us out of the, the, the idea that sports is ESPN or sports is CBS or that, that sports is like in a box that exists in your house that you like turn on and off that, that sports is like being outside and kicking a ball uh, to someone else. Um, And that, that there's just this real purity that can come from that, that, uh, that is also under this huge umbrella of what sports is. Yeah. Sports isn't just pro sports. I mean, sports for most of us started off with playing 500 with the kids in the neighborhood or playing flag football, Of course, you know, I mean, or just the fact that, you know, I was a gymnast and I had this huge backyard that I was constantly doing floor routines in, you know, I mean, that's, 
that's the heart of sports and why we all fall in love with it. And then along the way, if you work in this industry, it becomes something else, right? It becomes the competition with everyone else in the industry. It becomes like, oh no, this chick is on TV and I'm not, I have to find a way to get on TV. Um, or, you know, this person just scooped me on this story that I was working on. And you sort of lose sight of why you wanted to do this in the first place. Um, and so that's something that I've been especially trying to get back to, even though I still write about all this crappy stuff, but um, trying to get back to, you know, the things that were so wonderful and enjoyable about sports in the first place. And I have to say last year during the pandemic, I was just not, I was not interested for the first time in my life. You know, I didn't really watch baseball last season. Um, it just, it was too weird with no fans and in the pandemic happening and all these people dying and just being like, how can I care about baseball at a time like this? But it feels like, you know, the spring and summer, we're starting to come out of it. Baseball's coming back. There's starting to be fans there again. Um, you can sit outside at night and it's warm and you can listen to the game. And I feel sort of like I'm falling in love with just the sport, not sports media, but just the sport all over again. Um, and, you know, and I think that can be a thing that can really bring us together and heal us after a really tough couple of years. Sure. And I mean, I think that there was so much sort of so many moral questions about sports existing during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. sports being played. And so this idea that going through that process and then realizing, oh, now now I'm ready. Now I want this. Now this feels right. And, and, And especially with baseball being this, I mean, every year being a sport that's like you come out of the darkness to baseball. Exactly. Uh, and so it's not yeah. even necessarily my favorite sport, but it's still like I still have such an attachment to like what baseball represents as far as the seasons changing and and sort of the the like new life. And, yeah, for sure. Uh, so it's just that that's that's a nice sort of c- coming around to that uh, in a natural sort of organic way um, mm-hmm. rather than. Uh, Forcing yourself to be like, oh, I like baseball. I have to watch baseball no matter if there's a pandemic or not. Right. No, I completely agree with that. Um, Yeah. And especially, like I said, you know, you work in the industry and you, I know everyone who doesn't work in sports thinks, you know, it would never feel like a job for me. Trust me. It turns into a job. I mean, it does for everybody. And, um, you know, it's, it it was rough last year and, um, you know, it's, I, I always heard that, you know, eventually you're not going to feel the same way about this because you're, it's going to be your job and you're going to see things and you're going to hear things that you don't want to know about, um, about teams and about the players and stuff like that. Um, and you know, I'm a little bit more removed from it than I was before because I, I'm not, you know, interacting with players and stuff. I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm writing columns and I'm, I'm, you know, and I'm talking about it on podcasts, but it's not the same as being in locker rooms and, you know, being in press boxes and things like that. So, um, it gives me a chance to sort of come at it from a whole different way, um, which I think is is healthy. Yes. And and as far as all that sort of um, the toxic stuff that you face, the, the, the abuse that you have faced on, on Twitter and from from Barstool Sports followers and and all of that, like how, how did you come to. I, I'm just wondering sort of this book just as another step of kind of just like sharing and putting yourself out there was there a time when you were like I can either shut down or I can continue to just put put what I believe to be the right thing out there and and speak sort of truth to power about like what is existing in this in this sports media world and like the sort of the hardships that that um female journalists and and uh radio hosts go through 
That's a good question. I mean, I, there are definitely times when I shut down over harassment. Um, there are times when I've locked down my account. There's times when I've deleted my account. There's times when I'm like, I'm never going back on Twitter again. But unfortunately, that's where all the news breaks and happens. And that's where all the conversations around sports take place. Sure. So if you're not in Twitter, you're at a huge disadvantage um, in covering sports. Um, you know, when I, when it got to Barstool, I really was like, oh God, I know that, that after I write this, um, it's going to suck because they're going to see it. And they did. I mean, they read it. They read the entire book, um, over seven and a half hours on YouTube. Um, they talked about it over and over and over oh on their God, podcast. Oh my God, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, and I knew that kind of stuff was coming. Um, but, you know, I got to a point where I'm like, well, seriously, what else are they going to do to me? Like mass harass me. They've already done that tell everyone I'm, I'm horrible and I suck. I mean, they've done that. I mean, it, you just get to a point where you're like, okay, well, what are you going to do? You know, like the, and somebody has to say something. Um, too many, too many of us have been afraid of them for too long. And I see, um, you know, and one thing, Abigail is like the older you get, I don't know how old you are, but I'm in my forties and the older you get, like the less you start to care what people do to you and what they think about you, which is a blessing. It's like one of the best things about getting older. Um, and, um, you know, I started to see the way they're treating young girls in the industry, the same thing they did to me. And, you know, there's just a, like, this has got to stop. Like, this can't just, you know, and, and I know that I'm not going to make a difference to a ton of people. Like, that chapter is not going to take down Barstool Sports. Um, you know, I hope that it makes a few people think twice before they decide to partner with Barstool or, you know, something, you know, before they decide to, you know, put their logo on their terrible towels or, you know, whatever it is that they do yeah. on their, their rally towels. Um Think about, you know, what they have done, what they stand for and what they mean and the way they've treated too many women in the sports space. And um, I mean, you know, like I said, there's really nothing more they can do to me. So um, I decided and I really when my editor was like, I think you need to write about them. I was like, oh, come on. I don't want to do sure, that. Yeah, you know, I know you're like, haven't it. I done enough? <laughs> I know. I'm like, what? How? you know, like, why does it always have to be me? You know, and stuff. Um, but you know, just today, uh, you know, Hamel Jabari, who used to work for USA Today and who's a terrific hockey writer, she got it from them again today. And so whenever I see stuff like that happening, I'm like, yeah, I'm not sorry at all. Like, and I hope that, that sure. more, I hope as many people read that chapter if they don't read anything else in the book, because what they have brought into the sports world is just complete and total toxicity from a, a certain demographic. And it, it really sucks for a lot of people. Yeah, and you now have the paper trail of all paper trails, you know, as far as like all the evidence in and all the all the sort of experiences that you've had and that other women have had in one place. I mean, not including what's happened since or, you know, other things, yeah. but it's just I like... Mean, right. It, it feels more... I mean, I, I tweet about them all the time and about, you know, and then they all come after me, but it felt more... Um, it felt important to memorialize it like in writing in a book. Like somehow that felt more momentous to me than just tweeting about it. Absolutely. Because they can't just respond to me. They can't just, you know, tweet back. They can't, you know, whatever. It's like it's out there now forever and there's nothing you can do about it. As always, I'm happy to share that this episode of Dear Adam Silver is brought to you by Bookman's. Bookman's Entertainment Exchange sells used books, records, movies, musical instruments, and more and is a wonderful community-oriented store where the shelves are stocked with items brought in by the community. If you live in Arizona, support local business by shopping at Bookman's. 
And in addition to shopping, you can also trade your own used items in at Bookman's for cash or store credit. Bookman's has curbside pickup for books ordered ahead of time and for selling and trades. Upcoming events at Bookman's locations include several summer events for kids like Drag Queen Storytime, Virtual Stories and Crafts, and a Build Your Own Roller Coaster event as well as the usual manga virtual meetup. Please visit www.bookmans.com for more information and details about events and to find your nearest location. And remember, Bookman's has cool covered. There's another quote that I wanted to unpack a little bit from the first chapter, which I felt like really um, encapsulated this idea of access, equal access for male and female journalists within sports spaces. So the quote is, In truth, though, women never asked to go into the locker rooms. They simply asked to have the same access to players that their male colleagues did. And and I felt like that quote kind of, um, I mean, I think speaks to stuff outside of sports as well but just this idea that's so focused on like oh what does it mean to have a woman in the locker room and like you know what what could come of that and all that stuff and it's just like no one's asking for that specifically they just want this job (laughs) and that job requires going into the locker room to do their job in the best way possible rather than um it being about like this one thing that everyone got hung up on like that was that was the demand yeah locker rooms are gross Um, nobody wants to be in there. Nobody, I don't care how, like how much you love men, you don't want to interview naked, sweaty men. I mean, it's just like, it's not a fun place to be. It's awkward for everyone involved. It is the weirdest thing in the world to me that that is where we conduct interviews for sports teams. Um, but at the same time, that's where the emotion comes out. That's where you get guys to say things before they've thought it through, which is why everybody wants to be in there. Um, so, you know, I, I think that we're starting to see the the tide shift a little bit in that um, a lot of teams are bringing guys out now to talk to media in a separate room, which just seems much more intelligent and like professional. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, especially the first women through the doors, like um, Melissa Ludke, who sued Major League Baseball, like Marcel St. Cyr and Jane Gross. And uh, I mean, they all got called basically like whores because yeah. they want, you know, like, oh, they want to see naked men. Um, which is still something that women get accused of today. Like, you know, oh, you just want to be in sports because you think the guys are cute. Like, look, I can see cute guys anywhere. Like, I could have gone to Hollywood, you know, yeah. I'm here. <laughs> it's not because of cute men. And and that was really upsetting to them, you know, that people thought that of them, that thought they were just these, like, loose women who wanted to be around naked men. Um, you know, and I don't care how hot you think someone is. Nobody wants to be doing your job, like, talking to someone when they're naked. It's just bizarre. No. So um, it, it, it's a really weird situation. Um, I I hope that down the road we can come to some kind of consensus that gives reporters the access they need to players immediately after the game, but while they're clothed. That's such it when you say it in that way, it's like, what is happening? I know, just, it's just been so normal for us for so long. Right. But when you really think about it, it is so weird. Yes, and it's also just interesting that transition that was made immediately once the NBA uh, restarted with just post-game interviews being done over Zoom, and so you mm-hmm. know not, and so there's like there's a way. I mean, I I hope that things can get back to more in person, of course, in a safe way. But um, there's like we have alternatives, <laughs> um, and right. that it, it's just like when when there's an adjustment that needs to be made to like move forward the the season or the existence of that sport or whatever it is, like that's not going to be 
like it, it'll be done. So it just seems like, um, yeah, that there's a lot of possibilities outside of, of what's happened before. Yeah, I think that one of the big concerns now that teams have realized they don't have to give you access immediately, that people are sort of like, are we ever going to get back into locker rooms? And, and what they mean is, you know, are we ever going to have that immediacy right. where you get to talk to a guy while he's still fuming over, you know, he, the, the strikeout call that just happened or whatever? Um, and we don't know. I mean, I know the fear from everybody from like the people on real sports down to like high school, you know, people cover high school sports is, are we going to have to do everything from the studio now? Or is every interview going to be over Zoom? Yeah. Um, because, you know, really, I mean, I think teams would prefer not to give you access to players like that. Um, and so the concern now is now that they've figured that out, do things ever go back to the way they were? But I guess we'll find out. Sure. And and I could be totally wrong about this and feel free to let me know. But I also think that players are more and more willing to, to just like be a jerk sometimes in interviews. <laughs> um, I mean, big stars and stuff uh, and just kind of um, dismiss questions or say like, I'm not answering that or, um, you know, have a good night or whatever. Uh, and so yeah. like that, that I don't know if that was such a thing like in, in you know, I, I'm sure it's happened like historically. I'm just like, it, it seems so pronounced now. Yeah, I think that players have definitely taken back some of their power in mm -hmm. that regard. I mean, obviously, you know, if you want to say something, you don't have to go through the media anymore. You can put it out there on Instagram. You can put it out there on, you know, whatever, um, you know, Snapchat or, or Twitter or whatever. Um, and, you know, they've got the Players Tribune, which is basically just a PR site that they use for PR purposes. So they don't need the media in the way that they did before. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, in some ways the media doesn't keep their secrets like they used to. You know, I mean, if you watch the way that like the media handled guys like Mickey Mantle, you know, even though they knew things about him personally and privately, that none of that stuff came out. Now it's like, you know, people are dying to tell you all the dirt about players. So I think they feel, you know, a little That's bit probably taken advantage of in that way that, yeah, I play basketball. That doesn't mean you get to know everything about my personal life, right. um, you know? And so it's, it's a weird sort of balance. I think that we're always trying to strike. And um, yeah, I definitely think that players have gotten much more bold about that kind of thing, especially I think in the NBA where they probably have the strongest, I don't know the strongest players union, but they definitely feel like the league gives them more leeway to sort of be themselves, whether that's like beefing with someone on the court or, you know, telling a reporter what you really think, or they seem to have more of that than guys do in the NFL and stuff where they're constantly getting fined for, you know, not talking to the media. So um, yeah, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird line to walk. And I think that it's, a, it's something to always think about. Like, you know, are you, why are you telling this story? Are you telling it just to be first and make a name for yourself? And you're going to potentially embarrass someone and upset his family, or are you doing it, you know, because there's a legitimate reason, like someone is, you know, involved in domestic violence or, you know, something like that. So I think that's a question that I'm always trying to ask too, because we all hear things and know things about players. Um, but a lot of it, it's just, you know, if it was me, I wouldn't want someone to put that out there. And unless I have a reason to, um, because it's part of a larger issue, I'm, I'm not going to. Yeah, no, I, I think that's such a good point. Um, and something that comes up in the book when you're saying like people will talk to you about their favorite players and just be like, this person's yeah. so amazing. And you're like, that person oh. is not amazing. <laughs> um, and that's so, I mean, I think I have 
as a fan, I've I've tended to get swept up in, you know, my favorite players, my favorite teams, like these guys are the best. And then recently, I guess maybe in the last couple of years, I've been like, oh, I don't want to know that that person doesn't get along with their mom. <laughs> or I don't want to know this information like that unless it's coming from them. And that's, you know, it's in like their memoir or it's something that they're sharing yeah. on their Instagram. Like, I don't think it feels like it's not it's not something that I like enjoy learning about that person when it's when it doesn't feel like I'm not sure if that they that they want me to know it. And that the right. reason I have a right to know it is because they're famous uh, doesn't feel that's not compelling enough to me. <laughs> Um, right. And yeah, so, yeah. I mean, on the one hand, you're a public figure. And if you're doing stuff out in public, people are going to notice. Um, you know, on the other hand, I mean, I think of like Laramie Tunsil's, I think it was his uncle or something that put out video of him smoking pot during the NFL draft. Mm-hmm. Did I just ate myself by saying pot, weed? What? I don't know what the kids <laughs> say. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, Mary I, mean, Jane, I think, I think pot is, is perfectly fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, that was such a horrible thing to do. And and everybody retweeted it and he fell in the draft. And like, for what? For doing something that that millions of people do every single day. And people in the media do. It was so hypocritical. Um, So, yeah, I mean, and and there's things that I don't want to know. You know, I mean, there's things you find out about guys or you interview someone and they're just a complete jackass and you're just like, oh, God, you know. And and I try to preserve that for people as best I can because it's, it's, you know, why should they suffer just because I chose this this, this, uh, career path and I know all the shit about their favorite player, you know. So I just kind of I try to let it go. Well, it's so funny if it's because like, I really hate though. I tell them, I'm like, well, let me tell you about this guy. <laughs> sure. I mean, you can't always keep it in. I also think that purity that you were talking about like earlier with like having like done sports and participate in sports can also, there can be some purity from like your memories from like a baseball game, you know, or like mm-hmm. the first baseball player that you, I mean, I guess, you know, it's like I had a huge crush on Michael Jordan. Like I, right. I, he can, of course, do bad things, but like I'm always, he's always going to be like my first celebrity crush, and that's like a right. special place in my heart. Yeah. Um, and you know, like the first time you went, or like baseball games, or the smell of hot dogs, or whatever it is, mm-hmm. like those are special things about watching sports that like it's hard to let go of all of that, um, even when you feel like, oh, these guys are being assholes, or oh, this institution, this league is fucked up right. uh, and is, and yeah, is perpetuating I mean, fucked up things. Yeah. The line I've sort of gotten to is like, you know, if, if they're harming someone, um, I feel like people need to know. Yeah. And if the team is harming someone, then I feel like people need to know. But like, if you're having problems with your marriage or, you know, stuff like that, like that's not my business. And it's not my business just because you play sports. So that's sort of like sure. the line that I've drawn for myself. So people are always like, oh, how come you're not talking about Tiger Woods? And I'm just like, because Tiger Woods didn't physically hurt anybody. He didn't commit a crime. Yeah. You know, like his marriage is none of my business. And I feel that way, you know, about every athlete. Like, I don't necessarily care what they do. As long as, you know, and I, and I guess you can make an argument for like emotionally harming people. But, you know, unless someone is committing a crime with their partner, I, I'm probably going to let that go. So, I mean, I think that's that's an important distinction because um, you would have just you'd be writing constantly if um, you didn't have that. <laughs> I mean, you, I'm sure you already do, but it's just like there, you know, we have to have some sort of like way of differentiating between like, um, you know, different actions, you know, that right. are taken. I was, I actually have just been thinking about this so much because of Myers Leonard being fined, um, for, for saying, uh, 
that anti-Semitic slur recently, and then Kristaps mm-hmm. Porzingis was fined the same amount of money for going to a strip club. Yeah. Um, and I know that they, you know, they have this like cap on fines in the NBA, and they only go to fifty thousand. And uh, it's just like <laughs> it's so strange because during. Like outside of the pandemic, that's okay for Kristaps Porzingis to go to a strip club in between games, like in LA. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's just that's just, it's just it's a strange thing. Yeah, and I think that's fair commentary, just because LeBron did kind of the same thing and didn't get trouble at all. So I mean, totally, we were a little bit like that's weird other than LeBron's LeBron you know like and and, you know there were all these you know things like oh well LeBron was doing it with a league partner and everyone there was vaccinated and it's like okay but you know even so it's kind of a bad discrepancy and so I think things like that are fair game yeah I mean it's it's all just kind of like looking at the institution and how they handle things and how you I mean it's like with this punitive system who how do you decide like I mean I guess everyone's getting fined the same amount. Well, not everyone, because LeBron's not. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's just like that Myers Leonard, his anti-Semitic slur is like worth the same amount of money as like Kristaps Porzingis just like doing something that's sort of... Hanging out in the club. Hanging yeah. out in the club, which like, you know, I, I have my own opinions about like going to a strip club. But at the same time, it's like, that's kind of his business, I guess. It's like, it's not a crime. Right. Um, and neither also, is the anti-Semitic kind of slur. I mean, sort of, he's sort of a club guy. Right. I, he didn't think this was going to happen at some point. Sure. Yeah, but I agree. I mean, Myers Leonard, I mean, that is something he did. That is something that's harmful. It's harmful to a lot of people. Harmful to, you know, people playing the league. Harmful, you know, I mean, it's people who work in the league. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think that's a good example. Whereas Christoph Porzingis, I mean, I don't know. Is he vaccinated? I don't know. Like the pandemic has sort of like thrown a weird take on everything or thrown a weird twist on everything. But at the same time, I mean, yeah, like going to a club, is it's not illegal. He's not hurting anyone um, unless he's unvaccinated. I mean, it, it, it's, it just gets so complicated. Sure. But I, I agree with what you're saying in, in premise. Like, yeah, like, should you really be finding the same things for one thing that is, you know, objectively harmful to people and one thing that's not? Yeah. And and also it's just like Myers Leonard's Myers Leonard's excuses were so I mean there's no excuse for like Christoph Porzingis can't be like oh I didn't know what this club was like I didn't know how many people were going to be there like he like I mean there's just it's it, just like we also know that Myers Leonard kind of said something and then was was acting as though he he didn't know what it meant which is hard to believe Right. So there's like the, the there's the action and then there's like how you how you deal there's with the it disingenuousness after. of it. Yeah, yeah it's like, come on, dude. No. Like who says <laughs> who says things in anger that they don't know the meaning of? Like right. I don't right. know. Um, I agree. Yeah. So we've kind of gotten off we've gotten off the track just like how sort of behavior can be handled or or thought of within within this like the institutions of the leagues themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, Yeah. And it's, you know, it's one of the problems too that we have is that, you know, when we're talking about things that actually are harmful to people, whether we're talking about like sexual assault or domestic violence, like we have all these, or, you know, even just battery or, you know, we have all these different rules across all these different leagues and some don't even have policies at all. So, um, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I think we need to address in sports as well is that, you know, major league baseball, as you go through this whole process, if you get accused of domestic battery, domestic violence, whereas, you know, in football, they don't care about counseling. They don't care about evaluation. They just, you know, have, they just shut you down and they're like, you know, it's purely punitive. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of those kinds of things in sports that probably bear discussion. Absolutely. And that was such an important point. You brought up that like people deserve forgiveness, but how can we know that it's not going to happen again? 
or that they're they're actually remorseful for what they did and that they think that they shouldn't do it again. How, how do we measure that uh, without those well, yeah. sort of systems in place? Absolutely. And, you know, one of the points I try to make is that people don't realize that when you have like a he said, we always call it a he said, she said situation. But, you know, a, a victim's testimony is evidence. So people always say there's no evidence. Well, yes, there is. There's her testimony. But, um, you know, it's not he said, she said. It's it's she said plus he said and they said and he said and they said because he's not standing out there by himself. He's got an agent. He's got a lawyer, a team of lawyers, probably. He's got the team. He's got the league. He's got all his fans. He's got all these people on his side versus this one person standing alone. And and that is something that I think we really need to be much more cognizant of because we keep having these situations where, you know, women get bullied into shutting down and just deciding to, to give up and go away, um, which is a huge problem. And, you know, I talk in um, the book about the Patrick Kane allegations and, you know, what was happening to me, not to mention what was happening to the woman who accused Patrick Kane. Right. And the Blackhawks could have shut that down in five seconds, but they didn't. Um, you know, they let it go on and on and on and on. All they would have had to say is, please don't harass, you know, people making allegations. Please don't harass reporters covering the story. Um, but they, they didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a, a super, um, I mean, that was like a really depressing uh, <laughs> part of the book, I think, because yeah. it is this idea of, I mean, I think that we're having so many talks about like issues at the systemic level right now, just as like a society, we're having those talks about, you know, how racism functions at the systemic level and all this stuff. And this institution can keep the individual from being harmed and is choosing not to. And like, that's how these things continue. Exactly. Exactly right. And, you know, there's the, the, the thing that is so difficult about it is that this is where so many young men and women will form their ideas about things like domestic violence and sexual assault because they're on Twitter, they're on Instagram, they're on sure. Snapchat, they see people talking about it and um, people are spreading misinformation like, oh, they, you know, like this person was found innocent and the judge, you know, dismissed the charges when that's not at all what happened. Basically, the victim was bullied into dropping the charges and there was no finding of innocence because you don't have any kind of a finding when charges are dropped. Um, But, you know, those kind of nuances don't make it into the discourse. And so you have people learning about these things from sports um, and in a really unhealthy way. And that's why I think it's, it's really important for sports reporters not only to cover this stuff, but to make sure that they themselves are educated about these topics before they talk about them. Um, I mean, you know, I think Adam Schefter's interview with Greg Hardy is just a great example of what not to do when you're, when you're talking to someone who's accused of domestic violence, um, asked all the wrong questions, believed everything Hardy threw his way, basically softballed his way through the interview. Um, and then everyone declared that Greg Hardy had changed. I don't think we have any evidence at all that Greg Hardy has changed. Um, But, you know, that's what the NFL wants you to believe. And so that's, you know, part of what I mean when I say that it's not just him. It's it's him and an entire legion of people behind him who have a vested interest in rehabilitating his image. Absolutely. And I feel like with someone like Adam Schefter, he like needs he needs the NFL on his side to like do his job. I mean, the best way possible because he is like the insider and is breaking all the news and all of that. And like, he can't piss off big names or the NFL itself um, because then that information won't get to him and he won't be able to to drop the bombs. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, um, 
what happens across the board. I mean, one of the, you know, sports is not the same and editorially as covering the news is, um, you know, it's sort of a hybrid between sales and marketing and news. And so people don't feel, you know, like, for example, you know, like the white house, they can, they can bar reporters if they want to, but reporters can also put up a huge stink and they're going to have to let them back in. Just like this happened with, with Jim Acosta at CNN. Um, sports isn't like that. You know, if you piss off a team, they're just like, well, we're not, we're not letting you talk to any of our players again. And we're not letting anyone at your station talk to our players again. And then it's your fault that your whole station can't get information. Um, And that's what, uh, you know, a lot of staying silent about things is about preserving access. And I think that, you know, for a lot of people who have just come up in sports media, that's just the way it is. I think that people that have worked in other industries and that have worked in, you know, like more traditional news are really appalled by that. And it's something that, uh, you know, we're going to have to sort of uh, deal with as an industry. Yeah. And and so much in this book, I think, you know, of course, have thought about sexism in sports and how that functions. But just having so much unpacked around sexism in sports media and how that works, uh, I think that's that's really just necessary. Because like you were saying, you know, you turn on the TV and you, you see like, oh, there's a woman and a man anchoring the show. Like, look at this great progress. And then or there's a woman and two men. And then you realize like, oh, the woman's getting interrupted when she's talking uh, and the men are just talking to each other and over her and like all this stuff. Like I'm just thinking about like first take and other things like that. And so then right. it's just it's it's like um, there's just still it's still not it's not there yet. Or it's that, you know, oh, there's a woman in between the two guys and she's soliciting and moderating opinions from them. But she doesn't ever actually get to share opinions. of her Sure. Own. I mean, those are the kinds of things that we uh, tend to not think about necessarily when we turn on TV and see that there's women involved. Um, It's not the same. It's not the same. Being a side-only reporter is not the same as being in the booth. Being a moderator is not the same as being an analyst who gives their opinion. Um, I know that like ESPN, I had some women reach out to me that were upset because men are called sideline analysts while women are called sideline reporters. Wow. You know, I mean, so that's that's a big problem. And it's one that, um, you know, like I said, you can be sort of tricked into not thinking about because you turn on the TV and you see two men and two women. But the reality of, you know, what jobs they have and what they're allowed to do are very different. Right. What are they trusted sort of what are they trusted to do? And and that came up so much in your book, too, as far as talking about when you were doing the that 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 first position, I'm forgetting the name of it, but it's kind of like a lot of the times like the jumping off point for women in the industry, like when you're doing the score updates. But that doesn't mm-hmm. require that's not that's not asking you to give a take or your analysis or what you think of right. that score or how that score came to be. It's just like the facts. And and that right. was a really important distinction. Um for me through, through, through reading that. Yeah. I, it, again, it's, um, and I think it's funny that we've all sort of had to prove that we could just regurgitate facts before we were allowed to give our opinions. Whereas men tend to move right into that. I mean, the, the scoreboard update role at two stations that I was at were basically the roles for women. And that was where they would put the token woman. And then the men were all hosts of the shows mm-hmm. who talked about, you know, their opinions and why things are the way they are and, you know, prognosticated about things. Um, whereas, you know, the women had 90 seconds to, you know, tell you straight facts. And then that was it. And even then, I mean, people would be like, you know, oh, I'm not sure if that's true. I heard her say it. I better hear a man say it before I believe it, you know, kind of thing. Uh, so 
I, I think that, you know, that's why it's so important to, to get women into into the booth, to get women into analyst roles, to get women into roles where, you know, I remember, I won't even name this person because I don't want to embarrass her, but there's one person in sports who is so incredibly talented. And I remember watching a big event on TV and they had reduced her to the social media person. Like basically her job was to tell you what tweets were coming in. And I was like, this is such a complete and total waste of such a talented person. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing that we see happening to women, you know, in sports media just way too often. Uh, you know, we're making strides, but not necessarily as quickly as we can. And they've been way too long in coming. Absolutely. I think that's a perfect place to end a conversation that should never end, <laughs> um, <laughs> that should keep going because there's so much to to discuss and uh, unpack around this issue in order to be able to identify it more readily as like a consumer. Uh, so thanks for writing a book that does that. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really, you know, writing a book is such a lonely endeavor. And the whole time you're writing it, you're like, everyone's going to hate this book. And then it comes out and you get like two weeks in the sun and then you go back into your closet and like write the next book. So it's really rewarding to hear that, you know, that it resonates with people and that they enjoyed it and that, you know, maybe people make some connections with it, even if they don't watch sports. So thanks. Yeah, for that. I totally think that that is something that I was thinking about while reading this book was that this can make sort of just this can uncover some stuff for people, even if they're not everyday sports fans, because you're explaining these situations, you're explaining the dynamics like those are things like the title of the book that just like those happen outside of sports, too. So you can connect with this book because it, you're, this is just a one version of sexism. Yeah, I, I was really gratified to have people reach out to me and women say, you know, oh, I work in music and this is exactly what my life is like, or I work in venture capitalism and I can't believe how much of this I, you know, resonated with me. So uh, that's sort of what I was hoping for. I didn't want to write a book that was going to sit on the sports shelf next to like a Mickey Mantle biography. I wanted <laughs> to write something that was going to be sort of in the feminist literature, you know, section and, and, um, you know, so when I hear that it, that it does sort of check those boxes for people, that that's really a good thing to hear. Good, good, good. Well, I'm so excited to have you on. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for making time and writing this book and um, being willing to unpack it with me. And yes, uh, I just appreciate your time so much. Oh, thanks. You're so sweet. Yeah. Take well, care. We'll talk soon. Okay. Sounds good. Bye. Bye-bye.